Hi, and welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today, my guest is Dr. Mark Hyman, a proponent of functional medicine and a really smart guy. He was here at the Esalen Institute for a conference called Mind, Mood, and Food. And while here, he was stirring up some interest around a host of topics, including healthy fats and what not to eat. Mark is the medical director at Cleveland Clinic's Center for Functional Medicine and an 11-time New York Times best-selling author. Some of his books include The 10-Day Detox Diet, Eat Fat, Get Thin, and The Ultra Mind Solution. Dr. Mark Hyman is a regular contributor to many television shows, such as CBS This Morning, The Today Show, Good Morning America, CNN, The View, and Dr. Oz. He is an awesome guest. Very easy to talk to, so full of information, it made my head spin. So get ready to learn from Dr. Mark Hyman. Dr. Mark Hyman, thank you so much for joining us today on Voices of Esalen. Thanks for having me. I heard an interview with you where you said that when a patient comes to me with a problem, I give them a cookbook, not a prescription. That's right. Yeah, food is the most powerful drug. Uh, we often think of food as just energy or calories, but the science shows that it's really clearly the most powerful biological response modifier that we interact with every day. That means every bit of food basically creates messages that changes your gene expression, that regulates your hormones, that affects your immune system, that affects your brain chemistry, that affects your gut flora with every single bite. And it has the power to transform people's health, not in weeks or months, but literally in days. And we see this, for example, in our clinic at Cleveland Clinic, we just had a patient come in who was part of a group program on diabetes. And within three weeks, she got off insulin after being on it for 20 years. There's no drug on the planet that can do that. I was curious about your background. It seemed from the, the bit of research that I did on you that you began studying in the meditation field. Yeah. Yeah, no, I was, <laughs> medicine was the last thing from my consciousness. I was focused on Buddhism and um, Eastern religions and the mind and consciousness. I was a yoga teacher before I was a doctor and uh, basically just took every course I could on Buddhism and ended up having to major in Asian studies because I had credits in that and nothing else. And it, <laughs> it was sort of what happened. Uh, and then through the framework of Buddhism, it really became clear to me that, you know, the model of compassion and healing was really central to that. And in a sense, Buddhism was a healing of the mind, but it was all integrated. And I sort of had this romantic notion that, you know, Tibetan Buddhist monks were the doctors, that you had to be a monk to be a doctor. And I sort of wanted to be a monk, but I didn't really want to be a monk. So I kind of decided to be a doctor. <laughs> no, I mean, I went into medicine with my eyes wide open, knowing it was only part of the story and was really focused on systems theory. In fact, you know, Gregory Bateson, who's really a legend here at Esalen, uh, was one of my inspirations around reframing the world from a systems point of view. And I studied ancient systems of healing in college, and did independent study. I mean, there was no course on it. I just sort of made it up. And and through that lens, I really had a different framework of biology and health and wellness and healing. And I was really uh, carried that with me through medical school, although I did get a little brainwashed. When I was probably six years into practicing medicine, I became acutely ill with... Um, who knows what at the time, it was really unclear. I had severe fatigue, cognitive dysfunction, insomnia. My gut stopped working, I had diarrhea for years. My muscles were being damaged and having fasciculations, which is twitching. I had 
rashes all over and allergies and tongue swelling and eye swelling and just bizarre symptoms that no doctor really could name. And I realized that, you know, I needed to figure out a different way. They wanted to give me an antidepressant or anxiety medication or sleep medication. I'm like, no, 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 there's, I'm not depressed. This is something is physical going on here. And I realized that I needed to, to sort of look for another approach. And Kathy Swift, who's one of the colleagues with me teaching here at the Mind, Mood and Food conference at Esalen, said to me at Canyon Ranch at the time where I was working that there was this amazing speaker who's coming to teach about something called functional medicine. I was like, oh, I don't know what that is, but I was willing to listen to anything. I went and I heard this guy speak, Jeffrey Bland, who was a student of Linus Pauling, and I heard him reframe biology from a system's point of view and talk about root causes, the medicine of why, not what, not what disease do you have, or what drug do you take, but why is this going on? And I thought, oh, this guy's either crazy or he's a genius, and I better figure it out for myself and my patients. So I started researching it and applying it and doing it on myself and doing it on patients, and people started getting better and radically better, like things I'd never seen before in medical practice. And then I started healing myself from mercury poisoning, and through that I really began to, whether it's you know a good or bad thing, it ended up, I think, being a good thing. It was a lot of suffering for me at the time to go through it, but I literally learned about every biological system in the body, not through a textbook, but through my the book of my own life and my own body, through understanding the dysregulation that happened in my hormones and my brain chemistry and my gut and my mitochondria and my detox system, and all these basically fundamental biological systems that drive every disease. So we have a new book called ICD-10 Medicine. It's basically a catalog of diseases and it used to be 12,000 now it's 155,000 which is you know you have rheumatoid arthritis in your left finger in the second joint but only on Thursdays and only when the pope's in town you know like that's sort of the the specificity which is really descriptive it tells you what the symptoms are but it doesn't tell you what the cause is you can have the same symptom same disease but many different causes so for example celiac disease can cause autism and schizophrenia and autoimmunity and osteoporosis and depression and colitis and all these different conditions that are caused by one thing that shows up as many different forms. And you can have also one condition like rheumatoid arthritis that may be caused by gluten or it could be caused by mercury or it could be caused by imbalances in your gut flora or it could be caused by an infection like Lyme disease. And so we, we sort of don't track things according to the cause and to the system. So functional medicine really looks at what are the root causes? And there's not many. What are the core systems that get out of balance? And there aren't many. And then how does our lifestyle and environment and our genes interact to change those systems from balance to imbalance? You spoke a little bit about the suffering that, that you went through when you changed your diet and you changed your health. I wonder if you could just talk about that for a moment. Yeah. So, you know, I was a guy who was extremely healthy. I was, you know, vegetarian for most of my 20s. I did yoga. You know, we had yoga class in New York. There was one yoga class, and I think there were five people in it, you know, at the most. And and so I was really active. I ran five miles a day. I did yoga every day. I went on bike trips, riding 100 miles a day for, you know, from Boston to New York. I mean, I was really fit. I had a really sharp mind. I could see 30 patients in a day and remember everything without notes and dictate everything. I could basically function at an extremely high level and then everything stopped. It was when, like being all of a sudden I was basically struck with ADD, depression and dementia like all at once and my physical system collapsed. And uh, I really had to 
dig deep because I had to figure this out while I was sick and my brain wasn't working. So I was really battling uphill. And, uh, you know, I think I have a very unusual personality where I just, uh, I'm very dogged and persistent and don't give up and will follow something to the end to figure it out and keep asking why, why, why. You know, my mother always, uh, when I was a kid, she always, when I came home from school, she, she never said, what did you learn today in school? She said, what questions did you ask? And so I was always about the questions. And so I had to really go into the questions for myself and uh, it, it was really tough. And at the same time, I was raising two young kids on my own. I was a single dad trying to work and trying to function and I barely could do it. Uh, many times I just thought of suicide. I thought of quitting work, being on disability. I thought, I mean, I just I probably should have. I mean, anybody else would have, <laughs> but I, I really just powered through it and uh, for good or bad, but it, it allowed me to you know, passionately discover what was wrong and how things work. It was like, what is the nature of things? Like asking, what is the nature of, of health and sickness and how does it occur? And, and through that process, I was able to, to really discover this model and, and have a laboratory where I could test it out on my patients. And, and through that process, I, I became sort of the unlikely expert in this field by just survival and, it allowed me then to start talking about it. And I became very passionate to share it, to talk about it, to tell the world about it. That's still what I do. And I think to me, it's the biggest advance in human um, thinking since, you know, evolution or relativity. I mean, it's a fundamental paradigm shift. Uh, and, and yet it's still silent, quiet, and sort of secret. And I mean, we are starting to break through, but uh, it's slow. Do you still think of, do you think of yourself as an alternative health practitioner? I was kind of researching you and-, and No, think, not at all. <laughs> no, you, so you feel like you're, the gospel that you're preaching has gone mainstream. No, it hasn't gone mainstream, but it is the future. You know, it's like, well, well, we now know the earth isn't flat and we're good with that, but this is not accepted at all. Uh, although the, 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 the model's breaking down. So for example, now I have a, a way of talking about it with traditional doctors where they don't have an answer. For example, the microbiome we've talked about for 30 years as a key strategy for fixing health, chronic health issues and getting to the root of the problem. And now we know the microbiome's linked to obesity and diabetes and heart disease and cancer and autism and allergies and autoimmune diseases and depression and much, much more. So how do we explain that given our current paradigm? We can't. Like we, we can't explain the fact that you can have a heart attack because of your gut flora, right? But we can explain it with the new paradigm. Yes. I want to ask you a bit about going to the, a little bit of specifics about sugar and starch and fat, if, if that would be okay. Yeah, my favorite you. topics. <laughs> <laughs> I was listening to this awesome interview with you and Sean Stevenson, who's one of my favorite oh, I love him. Uh, podcasts. So he's brilliant. Um, did your homework. Shout out to, to Sean and Jade. I think he had, he had the little headline about separating the fat from fiction. So if yeah. you could separate the fat from fiction, first of all, why did fat get such a, a bad name? In the yeah. Well, I wrote a book called Eat Fat, Get Thin, where I cataloged the history of this epic failure of science, where we had weak science that didn't prove anything, didn't prove cause and effect, right? There are studies that can prove cause and effect and there are studies that show a relationship, but you don't know if it's a causal relationship. And these early studies done in the 60s were based on the hypothesis by this one man, Ansel Keys, who believed that fat was the cause of heart disease and particularly saturated fat. 
and he kind of massaged his data to look at seven countries, ignored the rest of the 14 countries that were not supporting his thesis, like, for example, France, which had a lot of butter and cream and had the lowest rates of heart disease, but he focused on you know other countries like Germany. And he found there was a correlation, but that then became the philosophy that was held by the American Heart Association, and that got translated into the government policy in the 70s with the McGovern Report, and we were told to cut back on fat and to increase carbohydrate intake, and then the food pyramid came out in 1992. And again, there were no randomized trials that actually showed that this was true. In fact, there were many randomized trials that showed it wasn't true, but they were ignored and excluded from the data. And it's still being excluded from the data that we have. So what happened was that we got the food pyramid, which said eat six to 11 servings of bread, rice, cereal, and pasta a day, which then turned up this hockey stick growth of obesity and type 2 diabetes. We tripled the rates of diabetes. We've gone you know, to place now where we have 70% of Americans overweight and 40% of kids overweight and 40% are obese of adults. This is just unprecedented in human history. And it's all driven by this carbohydrate and starch and sugar consumption. We went to the low fat craze and low fat we thought was good because fat had extra calories, more than carbs and protein. Fat, you know, has this ability to create higher cholesterol, which we think is what causes heart disease. Although now we know it's all inflammatory and the cholesterol is sort of a bystander, we kind of got stuck in this paradigm. And so we ended up having the food industry push, you know, hundreds of thousands of low-fat products. We had the government telling us to eat low-fat. We had them to tell us to cut out cholesterol. And then the 2015 Dietary Guidelines, they finally changed their view and eliminated any limit on dietary fat, although they didn't say, you know, ding-dong, the witch is dead, but like they just sort of quietly removed it. And then they said, well, cholesterol, we actually never looked at the data. Sorry, for 35 years, we told you to eat egg white omelets, but the data doesn't show that. We just assumed that because cholesterol is bad. So if you eat cholesterol, it's bad. So don't eat cholesterol. Saturated fat, same thing. You know, we, we, we really have only recently had better data looking at huge studies, 17 meta-analyses, looking at all the data, randomized trials, observational data, blood levels of fats, all correlating to try to find a connection between saturated fat and heart disease, and there is none. And in certain subset of patients, there may be a risk genetically, but in the large percent of the population, it's not really, I think, a problem. And in fact, it creates better quality cholesterol than starch and sugar, which actually cause you to have the bad kinds of cholesterol. So it's kind of perplexing, but when you eat sugar, you produce fat. When you eat fat, you burn fat. It's like a total paradox, but it's actually how the body works. And how does insulin fit in there when you eat starch and sugar? Yeah, so the, the whole shift has been from the energy hypothesis, which is that all calories are the same. So a thousand calories of broccoli and a thousand calories of soda are the same. According to every scientist, uh, nutritionist, doctor, government recommendation, the food industry, it's all about moderation to a, a view that is now based on good science that shows that carbohydrates, both starch and refined starches and sugars, drive up a hormone called insulin. This is called the carbohydrate insulin hypothesis, which is where insulin produces um, more hunger. It causes the fat to be stored. So all the energy gets stored, particularly in your belly fat. It slows your metabolism, and it's like a one-way turnstile on a subway. It locks the fat in the fat cells so it can't get out, whereas fat does all the opposite. So fat will actually stimulate your metabolism, will cut your hunger, will cause the fat to be released from the fat cells, and doesn't produce insulin. So sugar and starch and a little protein, too much protein, can also cause insulin elevations, but fat can't do that. 
And then people go, well, that's not true. Well, just think about this. If you're a type 1 diabetic, which means your pancreas dies and you have no insulin, you could be eating 10,000 calories a day and losing weight because you need insulin to store calories. As long as you eat fat. I mean, that's why we're showing ketogenic diets causing people to lose 100 pounds, reversing diabetes. A new study on which is 70% fat, right? People are like, 70% fat. <laughs> but that diet has been shown to reverse 60% of diabetes, type 2 diabetes, has been shown to get 100% of people off the main diabetes medication called oral hypoglycemics, which have been shown to cause heart disease. And it 94% get off their insulin or dramatically reduce their insulin and lose an average of 30 pounds, which is unprecedented in weight studies. So this is a really a radical thing. And you know what was bizarre about this study? It was a really well done randomized control trial published in February 2018. There was no headline about it. There was no news about it. You know, we're talking about incremental changes. A new drug comes out that's cost 50,000 a year or 10,000 a year is incremental. This is a quantum change in biology. Well, why do you think that, that it doesn't get more press? I think, you know, it's like there's a, there's a saying, R.D. Lang, uh, a psychiatrist in the 60s, 70s, he said, scientists can't see the way they see with their way of seeing. So we get locked into a paradigm. They, do they see what's in front of them or do they see what they believe, right? Do they believe what they see or do they see what they believe? And I think a lot of times people see what they believe and it's just like, well, that can't be true. Like you can't reverse diabetes. That's not possible, but it is possible. So in terms of fats, are all fats created equal then? No, all fats are different. So, you know, traditional, you know, my view is, you know, we, we, from an evolutionary point of view, adapted to certain kinds of foods. And the closer we stick to that, the better we're going to be. Now it's hard to do because we're not all hunting, gathering, eating wild food, but there's some massive change. Like we went from 22 teaspoons of sugar a year to 35 teaspoons a day. That is a massive change, right? We went from very little oils, I mean, in terms of refined oils, almost none except olive oil, to, you know, 10% of our calories being from refined soybean oil in 100 years. This is a thousandfold increase in our consumption of these oils. And uh, these refined oils are extracted through a very complex chemical process through hexane, the odor, deodorized, and they are... Um, unstable, inherently unstable. So they're called polyunsaturated fats, and these are now the predominant fat in our diet. And and uh, many scientists are saying these are good for us, they're better for us. I think the evidence really doesn't hold up. Again, a lot of these, these are correlation studies, and there's a lot of confounding in those. But when you look at um, the good fats, they're traditional fats, nuts and seeds, avocados, olive oil, even coconut and coconut oil, uh, they're a population that consume 60% of their calories from saturated fat. Like that from coconut, but like our 60% of their total calories are saturated fat, which the government says to eat less than 10. American Heart Association says less than five, you know, and they had no heart disease, obesity, diabetes, nothing. The uh, other good fats, um, you know, are omega-3 fats from fish. Um, and I think even grass-fed or finished animals are, are good. And I think that's a whole other conversation, but there's a lot of good fats in those, uh, CLA, which is a very special fat that's anti-cancer, speeds up your metabolism um, from grass-finished or, or animals. Um, and there's also uh, lower levels of omega-6s and more omega-3s. And so the whole profile is better. And the stearic acid, which is the saturated fat in meat, doesn't actually raise your saturated fat levels in your blood at all or raise cholesterol. So it's sort of neutral. So the whole idea that meat was bad because it had Saturated fat and saturated fat causes cholesterol elevations and the cholesterol is bad. That whole 
hypothesis is just breaking down. Like we're learning about heart disease being inflammatory, being from oxidative stress, being from gut microbiome, being from toxins. There was a new study came out about lead in the Lancet a couple of weeks ago where they found that uh, people who had at lead levels, very slightly elevated lead levels, had a greater risk over their lifetime of, of heart attack uh, than people who smoked. So we're not even looking at that. And you go to the cardiologist and say, oh, let me check your lead, let me chelate you, and let me like... But there was a study that was a, called the TAC trial. Again, this is where you know people's ideas don't get pushed through because there's this belief system about what is and isn't true. So we push statins because it's a huge farm industry, but uh, there was a tax trial. It was a $30 million trial by the NIH, National Institute of Health, looking at chelation therapy with EDTA for heart disease. And they found it was effective and it was safe. And yet nobody supports it. And it's not done in any major institution and it's completely ignored, even though it was a major government-sponsored, well-done, randomized controlled trial, $30 million. <laughs> like, what can you do? So science doesn't change behavior, unfortunately. Your uh, latest book, you're a... 10-time number one New York Times. 11. Best, 11. So this one hit, <laughs> hit number one too. Is food, what the heck should I eat? Did I get that title right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll ask you a couple foods if that's yes. okay. Yeah. So, I mean, the one that comes to my mind is is meat. Is it okay to eat? How much can I eat? You know, I want to live to be 120 and um, I don't want to eat meat if it's going to kill me. Man, if I listen to my vegan friends, it's definitely going to kill me. And it's having an egg is like smoking five cigarettes and meat is the, the scourge of the planet. And you know, I decided to kind of do the homework myself and not listen to the sound bites or even the headlines or even the abstracts of papers. But I went and gathered all the best research on meat and I locked myself away in a room in a hotel for a week and I read them. The methods, the materials, all the specifics of the studies. <clears throat> and I realized, you know, there was a lot of contradiction. A lot of them were population studies, which aren't that conclusive. They just show an a pattern of relationship. And a lot of the data that shows that meat is bad, it's not experimental data, it's population data, meaning they take a group of people, they follow them for 10, 20, 30 years, they give them a questionnaire every year. What did you eat last week? What did you have for breakfast, lunch, dinner? Hopefully you can remember. Hopefully it's not biased, and it often is, right? Because if you are someone who uh, is in a culture where meat is the devil, you're going to underestimate your consumption of meat. And if you think vegetables are good, you're going to overestimate your consumption of vegetables. It's just human nature. They try to control for that, but it's hard. But what was more interesting was that people who ate meat during that time period of the study, when meat was considered the devil, didn't care about their health. And the data on these people is really clear. They smoked more, they drank more, they didn't eat fruits and vegetables, they didn't exercise, they ate more sugar and processed food, they didn't take their vitamins, they weighed more, they ate 800 calories more of food a day. Of course, they had more heart attacks and cancer. Like, there's no surprise there. Other studies, large studies of half a million people, don't show that pattern. And other studies show that with 11,000 people split into two groups, meat eaters and vegetarians who shopped at health food stores, they both had their risk of death reduced in half. So it's not the meat itself, it's what's going on around it. And then interventional studies where they put people on paleo diets, you see dramatic improvements in muscle mass, reductions in insulin, reductions in inflammation, increases in um, your your insulin sensitivity and better cholesterol profiles uh, all the way across the board. So you, you see that there are, uh, you know, in small, they're small, like there may be 50 people or 20 people or 30 people. You, you know, it's hard to do studies with 10, 20,000 people like this. But when you do that, you see 
improvements. And then the question is, you know, what are the other issues around me? Moral, I think if you're a Buddhist monk, okay, I have some Buddhist monks who are patients and I don't make them, you know, the Dalai Lama eat meat, right? But I teach them how to eat a low carbohydrate, starchy diet, which, because all these guys get diabetes. <clears throat> I took care of the abbot of Menry, who was the 33rd abbot. The Dalai Lama's like the 14th Dalai Lama, and he had diabetes. He recently just died at like 90. And why do they all get diabetes? Because they're used to running around herding yaks at 17,000 feet and eating traditional foods. And all of a sudden they're sitting on their meditation cushions in, the, in the <laughs> India eating a lot of rice and starch and sugar. And their, their bodies aren't really adapted to that. It's all like the Native Americans. Um, you know, they're very adapted to a very different diet. And all of a sudden we give them our Western diet and they all get massively overweight. So, so then the third issue is the environment. And this is really an important issue because people say, well, yes, maybe meat's not so bad for your health, but it's causing climate change and global warming. And I would say, yes, that's true. I mean, factory farming of animals is one of the worst things we do. Why? Because one, 70% of the world's agricultural lands are used to grow meat for human consumption. The way they grow the food is damaging the earth through excessive tilling, which causes soil erosion which then prevents the soil from holding the carbon, which then protects us from climate change. We think the rainforests are a big carbon sink, but so is the soil. 40% of the world's, you know, earth is grasslands and we're destroying them, which is leading to more carbon release. And then we can't hold water. So you see droughts and then you see floods. I think people don't understand that, that it's all connected. Uh, and then of course we grow them in these intensely inhumane conditions. We pie them full of hormones and antibiotics. We are producing quality meat that's pretty bad. We feed, we feed them Skittles, we feed them ground-up animal parts, we feed them corn and soy, stuff that's not their native food. We feed cattle Skittles? Yeah. There was a huge news report of this giant truck that had you know expired Skittles with the packaging that they literally just were on their way to the feedlot to dump it in the feedlot, and they feed them expired candy. Yeah. Wow. I don't... And then, of course, you know, water use is terrible because we 70% of the world's fresh water, which is only 5% of the Earth's water, and 1% is in Russia, so good luck with that, on uh, Lake Baikal is used for growing animals for human consumption. So that's an issue. Now, there's a whole other movement uh, called regenerative agriculture, and some hypothesize that, in fact, it's the answer to climate change, that we probably can't grow as much meat at scale as we do now, but we probably could if we really utilize the 40% of the world's grasslands, which can't grow anything else, really. There's a guy named Alan Sabry from the Sabry Institute who's really looked at how do we restore deserts that it were grasslands by using animals to fertilize the soil, to dig it up with their hooves, to pee on it, to poop on it, and then move them in, in natural patterns as if migration patterns as traditional herds did. And that actually can regenerate and rebuild soil. So people say eat less meat. In fact, eating more of the right meat may be the answer to climate change. What do you think about organ meats? Organ meats are, you know, typically people call them awful, which is O-F-F-A-L, but some people think they're awful. The truth is they are one of the most nutrient-dense foods. I don't know if you remember the movie Dances with Wolves, but they go in and eat the liver, like they eat the organs. And when you see animals, like lions, the first thing they do is go for the organs. Why? Because they're the most nutrient-dense, they have the most vitamins and minerals, they have great levels of iron, and they are really good for you. Um, and if they're from safely raised animals, they're okay. So I think, um, you know, some people don't like them, but that's another issue. But I think, you know, organ meats actually are, are one of the 
the best sources of nutrition on the planet. What's your take on dairy? Well, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of debate about dairy, but the, the current guidelines that we have from our government is to have three glasses of milk a day for adults and two for kids. And there is no evidence to support that. Um, if you look at the, uh, the uh, FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, they came down hard and had the Dairy Council, which was partnered with the National Dairy Health Promotion Board, which is a government organization that is designed to help promote the use of dairy. So the government is literally pushing dairy. They're partnering with the, the industry and they promoted these ads, got milk ads, where they made all these claims like it's great for your bones, it's great for this, great for that. And the FTC said, no, 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 that's not true. You have to take these ads down. There's no evidence that that's true. Uh, and sort of like got proof, you know, <laughs> and the answer was no. And uh, a couple of friends of mine, uh, Dr. David Ludwig and Walter Willett from Harvard, uh, published an editorial saying, you know, where's the data? And, here, and here's actually the evidence. One, is skim milk, which is usually pushed on kids and everybody else, increases obesity because it takes out the fat, which makes you full. Two, it increases fracture rates in many studies, doesn't protect against bones damage. Three, it can cause cancer. Four, it can cause autoimmune disease. Five, it can cause allergies, eczema, and all kinds of other digestive issues. And 75% of the world's population is lactose intolerant. That's the norm. Plus, the way we grow dairy, our modern dairy, is also a problem. So if you're having heirloom cows, and you know I travel around the world, and I see all these cows, and I take pictures of them because they look so funny and weird, and they're not these uniform cows like we have in America that are all some of the same genetic stock, fertilized by the same bull, and they have bred them for certain properties, but they've also bred them that leads them to have high levels of A1 casein, which is a very inflammatory form of casein that's been linked to all sorts of issues. Whereas goat and sheep, for example, don't have A1 casein, they have A2 casein, and that can be much better tolerated for many people. So do I say dairy is a no-no for everybody? No, but I think for many people who have any kind of illness, whether it's digestive issues, allergy issues, gut issues, autoimmune issues cognitive issues, it's worth stopping uh, and it's a trial. And I think if you do eat dairy, you should only have heirloom cows that are grass finished, not just organic because, I mean, and plus organic cows, even our milk during pregnancy, they're still full of hormones. And milk has 60 different hormones in it that are naturally occurring that are growth hormones. They turn a little baby calf into a big cow and, and they tend to create high levels of something called IGF-1, which promotes cancer. And I think it's just, it's, it's not nature's perfect food unless you're a calf. And I think there's no need for us to drink milk. We're the only species uh, that's a mammal that drinks milk after weaning. So am I a big fan of milk? No. Do I love ice cream? Yeah. Do I love cream? Yeah. Do I love cheese? Yeah. Like, do I never eat them? No, I eat them occasionally, but they're, they're pretty rare parts of my diet. And I think it's important people understand, like I know, for example, if I eat dairy, I'll immediately get congested. I'll get pimples. I'll get digestive issues like it's very clear, like, and that's me. Um, now, other people might not have that reaction, but but there might maybe other issues. So I'm not a big fan. I liked one thing I heard you say that where you it's not like I don't n- never eat sugar, but I treat sugar as like a recreational drug. Yeah, yeah, right. I, and that's the whole idea of this book, you know, food. What the heck should I eat? Which essentially I created uh, a deep dive into all the questions that people have around food, all the controversies, all the questions. What about this? What about that? For each category, meat, poultry, fish, vegetables, fruits, beans, grains, nuts, seeds, oils, sugars, sweeteners, beverages, all the questions. What should we be eating? What should we be not eating? And I 
also give the context of what are the social, political, environmental, human rights, uh, economic implications of the food we eat. Because it's not just personal choice. When you eat a food that's causing damage to the environment or there, there are, are important things to know about or that you're getting avocados from Mexico where 90% of our avocados come from and they're blood avocados because the, uh, the, the organized crime down there is oppressing the workers. And there's, there's considerations. Now, you can't be perfect about everything, but it's just to get people aware. And how do you eat, for example, fish that's safe or meat that's safe or what, what vegetables should we eat? It should be organic or not organic. So I go through all those questions, things about dairy and A1 and A2 casein. What about intermittent fasting or ketogenic diets? All the things that are up for people. What should I eat? Grains. What about lectins? All these questions that people have, I address. And then I give them a set of principles that are pretty simple. I came up with like 12 principles. I, I jokingly call it the pegan diet because uh, I was sitting on a panel with a friend of mine who was a paleo doc. Another guy was a vegan cardiologist and they were fighting. And I'm like, wait, listen guys, if you're a paleo, you're a vegan. I must be pegan. And it was a total joke. And then I went home and thought about it. I'm like, man, maybe not. Maybe this is like, there's similar principles that everybody agrees on. One, we should all be eating low glycemic foods, food that's not full of starch and sugar. Two, we should eat lots of vegetables, a plant rich, not necessarily plant based, but plant rich diet. 75% of your plate. Like last night, here at I had, you know, there was like a lot of kale and there was Chinese cabbage and then there was cauliflower and there was an artichoke. So I just piled my plate up and I had like a little piece of chicken on the side. I hope it was organic, but I don't know how soon it is here. And that was it. Um, so, and it also includes um, foods that are rich in good fats, avocados, olive oil, nuts and seeds, grass-fed meats, uh, wild fish that's full of omega-3s and low in toxins, you know, whole eggs, all these good fats that we should include in our diet, coconut oil. And then I talk about how we should avoid refined oils, things that are highly processed. And that also um, nobody disagrees with the fact that we should be eliminating hormones and pesticides and antibiotics and PCBs, all kinds of crap from our food. Nobody thinks we should be eating 3,000 food additives and three to five pounds per person a year of dyes and preservatives and sweeteners and Nobody thinks, oh, that's a great idea. We should definitely eat more of that, right? So everybody agrees with that. I think everybody agrees, even if you're a vegan, that if you are eating meat, you should eat it in a way that's humanely raised, that's sustainable, that is a part of regenerative agriculture. If you eat fish, you should do it in a way that's not over-harvesting and that farm-raised fish are, are raised humanely and also um, safely. So how do you have sustainably raised or harvested fish? Uh, and then, of course, nuts and seeds are great. And then dairy is a big question we just talked about. I basically say, you know, if you have some, have goat and sheep. Um, or if it's grass finished, but if hopefully an heirloom cow, <laughs> like good luck with that. So I, I kind of go through these principles that are pretty common sense, pretty basic. And in each category, what to eat in terms of veggies, like which one should you eat and shouldn't you eat? You know, our main five veggies are basically potatoes in the form of French fries, tomatoes in the form of ketchup and pizza sauce, um, you know, onions and corn, which are okay. I mean, sweet corn. And, and then of course, iceberg lettuce, which is really just basic cardboard with some water in it. Do you have any thoughts or advice for people who live in somewhat of a food desert? I think, you know, in the book, I do talk about how to eat well for less. I talk about, you know, how to find resources for food that are cheaper. I talk about the fact that there is a big myth that uh, people can't eat well and that it's the message and the meme that the food industry has, which is that it's difficult to eat well, it's expensive, it's elitist. And it takes a lot of time and you don't have time, so leave the cooking to us. And I think those are really unfortunate because people have believed them and, and they internalize that and they don't realize how easy it is. So I, I uh, had my eyes open once when I went to work with a couple of families, one in Florida, sort of on a, on a little hobby farm. There was six of them. They all were massively obese. 
another family in South Carolina, both tremendous food deserts. And uh, they were both very poor. The one in the South Carolina was on food stamps and disability, five members of family, and they lived in a trailer, and it was tough. Um, and I said, listen, you know, let's look at what you're eating. They thought they were trying to eat healthy. They wanted to be healthy. They didn't, they didn't want to be morbidly obese. They, the father was 42, already on dialysis from kidney failure. The mother was 200, I don't know, maybe close to 300 pounds. The son was almost diabetic at 16, was massively overweight. And I said, listen, why don't we just look at what's here? And I showed them the ingredients. Like, look, you can see this is trans fat and high fructose corn syrup in your Cool Whip, even though it says zero trans fat on the label. This is the worst thing for you. Or your peanut butter, it sounds healthy, is actually full of trans fat and high fructose corn syrup. And so we went through their whole cupboard and kitchen. Everything was in a box, a package, a can, frozen, whatever. Couldn't tell if you covered the label of a corn dog or Pop-Tart. You couldn't tell which, which was which because the ingredients all look the same. I mean, you really could not tell the different processed foods. They just had different colors and sizes and shapes, but it was essentially all the same crap made from flour, sugar, high fructose corn syrup, refined oils, and all these additives and chemicals and thickeners. And all of which, by the way, have been shown to be pretty bad for our health. <clears throat> and then I said, let's just cook one meal. Here, you can do this. And they never cooked before. They didn't have cutting board. They didn't have knives. They didn't know what to do. Uh, so here's how you peel a garlic, here's how you chop an onion, here's how you cut a sweet potato. And we had to use a butter knife to cut a sweet potato and an onion, which is not that easy. So, uh, and they never stir-fried a vegetable, they never baked anything, never roasted anything. We made turkey chili, we made a salad, we made got real lettuce. We didn't use store-bought dressing, which was, you know, full of refined oils and high fructose corn syrup and additives and gums and thickeners. I said, here's some olive oil, here's some vinegar, salt and pepper. You can throw mustard in there if you want for some flavor. And we made uh, turkey chili, we made uh, stir-fried asparagus with garlic, and we made uh, roasted sweet potatoes, you know, chopped them up with some herbs and olive oil and roasted them. They were like, this is amazing food, and this is so delicious, and wow. And I said, you guys can do this. And so they lived in one of the worst food deserts in America, uh, with 10 times as many fast food and convenience stores as grocery or produce stores. Um, and they lived on food stamps and disability, so they had a lot of money. And I said, well, here's this guide on how to eat well for less from the environmental working group. I'm on the board, and here's, um, here's a cookbook, one of my cookbooks. And you can do it. Try it. I'm like, that was it. And I went home, and I ordered on Amazon cutting boards and some knives for them and had them sent to their house. And they, they did it. Um, and they, they actually lost 200 pounds together as a family. The father was able to lose 45 and get a new kidney. The son lost 50, but he gained it back because he went to work at Bojangles because the only place for these kids to work is in fast food places down there. And then he, and then he finally got himself together, and he lost 128 pounds and is going to medical school. Wow. So, you know, I realized, like, we're one meal away from teaching people how to eat. And it might be a little harder. You might have to drive a little further. But, you know, I, I used to live in Idaho, and it's definitely a food desert. I mean, the... You know, the, uh, the produce section was the size of a small kitchen table, and the rest was all processed food. So I would drive 100 miles, <laughs> like every couple of weeks, and stock up. I bought a freezer, and I just, you know, fill up my freezer and my fridge and go to Costco. And, you know, I was, you know, not making very much money. I mean, I'm certainly not doing that bad, but I, it, was a, it was an effort. But, um, you know, it's doable. And, yeah, some people are, have a hard time, like, you know, and really poor neighborhoods, it's really tough. Uh, but uh, there's a way, there's a navigating way to do it. And I think now a friend of mine from Thrive Market got food stamps to be able to use online to buy things. So you can get stuff much cheaper. 
and, and he was able to do that. So there, there's double bucks. There's new programs around incentives around food stamps where you can maybe be able to get more healthy food at a discount. And when you buy junk food, you have to pay more. If there was something that you could tell people to throw out from their kitchens, what would that be? I would say you should throw out anything that has ingredients in it that you wouldn't have in your cupboard, like high fructose corn syrup or trans fat or maltodextrin or butylated hydroxytoluene or BHT, which is a preservative in almost everything. You wouldn't take a bottle of that and sprinkle it on your veggies. So if you see any ingredients that you can't recognize or pronounce or in Latin, uh, or you don't know where it came from, don't eat it. Uh, I was reading that you had had some opinions about fluoride in drinking water. And I was wondering if you could speak about that a bit. Well, that's a big topic. Uh, but bottom line is, you know, there's, there's some challenges around this. Kids are getting more and more fluorosis. It protects them for sure for cavities, but it causes other issues and bone issues. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of research being done on this, but it's, it's really a public health intervention and the data is kind of weak on it. And I, you know, I think if, if dentists are using practices that help retard tooth decay, there's ways to do it, although many people don't get to the dentist, which is a problem. But I think it, I think it's a, it's a concern of mine, and I, I would prefer we not fluoridate the water. In terms of sweeteners, are they... I, 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 what I understand is that they, they lead to releasing insulin into the, into the body. Now, is honey as culpable as maple syrup, which is that as culpable as... White shit. Yeah, I mean, pretty much all the same, you know, but some are worse than others. Like high fructose corn syrup is worse. I think you've got the artificial sweeteners that are having really adverse effects on cell metabolism, on gut microbiome, on weight. Um, and I think, you know, people think they're getting a free lunch there, but I wouldn't. Monk fruit is probably the best. Uh, monk fruit sweetener is a no calorie sweetener, but um, stevia, a little bit of that is probably okay. But all the sucralose and aspartame and neotame and all these horrible things that are science projects really we shouldn't eat. I mean, if it's a science project, don't eat it. Uh, the basic rule I have for people that I teach at churches and other places, I say it's really easy. If God made it, eat it. If man made it, leave it. I get that. Yeah, get it. It's like, oh yeah, did God make a Twinkie? Nope. Did God make an avocado? Yep. Okay, that's easy. Even a kid in kindergarten can figure that out. So what's one thing that you're really good at not many people know about? What's, a, what's one of your secret superpowers, Mark Hyman? I mean, I think my greatest superpower is the ability to see the connections between everything. Like I just have this brain that works to see all the patterns that connect everything together, and it's a whole story. And that helps me sort of navigate the world and see science in a different way and biology in a different way. Dr. Mark Hyman, author of Food, What the Heck Should I Eat?, and 10 other number one New York Times bestsellers. Thank you so much for joining us uh, on Voices of Esalen today. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. 